Akoto Fujimura, the world-renowned painter, works in a loft three blocks away from Ground Zero. And Fujimura has mastered the ancient Japanese art of Nihonga, in which mineral pigments are applied to paper and wedded to the Western style of abstract art. He was working in the studio on a painting similar to this one when the towers fell on September 11th, 2001. And he watched an airplane engine descend like a meteor from the sky, narrowly missing a pedestrian. A few years later, he wrote a book called Refractions, where he explains how the horror of 9-11 shaped his calling. He says, God has called me as an artist and a follower of Christ to live and work for the prosperity of the city, Jeremiah 29, in the ashes of September 11th. This artist who's still working in the heart of New York City has grasped a fundamental principle of urban ministry. God sends his people into the city to seek its peace and prosperity. And he's also discovered a unique application of the city, of the principle, that God's people can seek the peace of the city through their art. Now, we've been in a series studying Jeremiah 29, 4-7, God's letter to the exiles, where he tells them to seek the peace of the city. And certainly some of the 10,000 or so refugees that went into exile would have been artists. And that uh, makes sense because God himself is an artist. The Bible's opening line describes the creation of a work of art. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then a few verses later, we learn that the first human beings were created in the image of this creator, God. Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, in his book, Toward a Biblical View of Aesthetics, Frank Gablin draws this conclusion from the first chapters of Genesis. God is the great maker, the only true creator, from whom all other creative activity is derived. That we are made in his image is probably the greatest thing ever said of man and takes us deep into the nature of our human creative ability. For one of the marks of God that we learn is that we too, in our creaturely way, are makers. And in no human activity is the aspect of God's image more evident than in our making of art. So we're not surprised uh, when we get to the second book of the Old Testament that we, we find God commissioning art and calling for skilled craftsmen to create it. In fact, God calls for art at the same time he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. A meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, the Lord commands in Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God demands that his tabernacle be filled with beauty. And if you ever have a chance to read Exodus 25 to 40, you'll see uh, God calling for fine wood, gold overlay, finely crafted sculpture, 
a lampstand with almond flower cups, buds, blossoms, and branches. He asked that the priests wear garments that include gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Their robes are to be decorated with blue, purple, and red pomegranates with gold bills around the hem, as well as embroidered sashes. Uh, Trevetta Johnson puts it this way in her essay, Why the Arts is One of Our Values. God commissioned art to be made by skilled craftsmen to adorn the dwelling place of God. Art was a vehicle of encounter with the presence of God, communicating the beauty, sovereignty, and holiness of God. The artist did not try to draw God for people. Rather, art communicated the truth about God. God does give some people in his body the specific capacity to create art. And I know that we're all creative and there is a sense in which we could preach another sermon tonight where we could encourage you all to be creative as students and mothers and bankers and all of that. But tonight I'm focusing more on those of you with what I'll call the spiritual gift of being an artist. And I want to read part of the verse again that Lisa read because I think it's very significant. Uh, Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by my name Bezalel the son of Uri and has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, intelligence, and knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. So the ability to create art is a spiritual gift. Later in Israel's history, God commissions more art. He instructs his artists to adorn his temple with precious stones and freestanding columns, 2 Chronicles 3. He commands that an image of a bronze snake be placed on a pole, Numbers 21.8. He inspires his poets to write the Psalms. He commissions skilled musicians to lead his sons and daughters in the songs of the Lord. Psalm 33.3. He instructs his prophet Ezekiel to put on a play that will be assigned to Israel. Ezekiel chapter 4. He bids his people to celebrate him with dance. Psalm 149. So God seems to have a special place in his heart for his artists. He calls two artists by name to do the creative work in the tabernacle. The first artist is named Bezalel. And that means in the shadow of God, God's artists then work under his patronage and protection. They work under his shadow. The second artist is named Oholiab, and that name means my tent is the Father God. So God is the artist's shelter and refuge. Now, at the time that we get to the exile, the primary work of the artistic community in Israel focused on worship creating works of art in the tabernacle. Uh, So it's unlikely that uh, the Jewish artists living in the exile in Babylon had the resources or the theological vision to bless their city with art. But after Jesus' death on the cross, the temple becomes the people of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. God's people, scattered across the cities of the Roman Empire, become the temple, wherever they are in the city. And gradually, these temples, these people of God, begin to explore ways of bringing art into the cities where they're living in exile. 
The earliest Christians, just struggling to survive and worshiping in secret, carved into the walls of catacombs the symbols of, of a fish or an outline of a shepherd. And these were simple signs of faith that would not arouse the suspicion of outsiders. Then after the conversion of Constantine in 312, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and the emperor commissioned arts to tell the story of the faith uh, on walls and windows of the great churches that he built in the cities of the empire. From the time of Constantine to the Reformation, a period we call Christendom, Christian artists supported by the church painted and sculpted and wrote about biblical events and filled the city with their art. The Protestant reformers in the early 16th century felt that Christians had started to worship the art instead of God. And they also felt that money should be spent on the poor and not on art. And so they took paintings and sculptures out of the church. And that was a setback for many Christian artists because the church was a major patron of the arts. But the reformers also stressed that Jesus is Lord of all of life. And that had a positive effect. It it freed Christian artists to choose subjects beyond religious themes found in Scripture. And so Rembrandt, for example, dignified common people by making them the subject of his paintings, and that had not happened before. The reformers were also very suspicious of other types of art. Uh, They were not very open to the theater. They felt that 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 led to sin. Um, uh, The Puritans particularly were afraid of novels. They felt like if you were to read a novel, you had to engage in a that they said, believing a lie, uh, using your imagination. Now, we could say a lot more about this. It's a complicated tale, but if you fast forward to where we are now, I think we can say that the church still remains conflicted about art and her artists. And as a result, artists often feel unsupported by the church. Many artists, though, that are finding a new freedom Uh, in their art, are are finding ways to bless the city with their art. And tonight I'd I'd like to consider with you three ways that this is happening. The first is art nourishes worship in the city. The oldest way the art seek the peace of the city is by nourishing God's people who worship in the city. Uh, There's something about beauty that awakens longing for God. If all beauty originates from God, then all beauty found in the world reflects God's beauty. Now, stained glass is uh, one way that Christians have done this for centuries. That's a picture of uh, a stained glass window in St. John's. And this practice has gone on for a thousand years. Uh, Artists take small pieces of glass, uh, tint them with color and pigment, and then allow the light to reflect. Uh, Sometimes, as in the one above, it's just... It's, uh, it's abstract beauty. Other times it tells a biblical story. Um, now, uh, modern artists are using more uh, abstract art to draw people into worship. This is a painting that uh, our own Ashley uh, Adair Walker was commissioned to do by the church, and it's in our worship center, or rather our prayer chapel upstairs. Um, it, it's a picture of a young lady diving in the pool at one level, and it invites uh, worshipers to wade in or dive into prayer. But uh, if you ever have Ashley talk to you about it, there's many, many th- more things going on in the painting than that. And as I've sat before uh, the painting now for uh, many months now, I continually uh, am, am drawn to explore other 
aspects of God because of it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, explains the witnessing power of beauty in his Nobel lecture. He says, Art can warm even a chilled and sunless soul to an exalted spiritual experience. Through art we occasionally receive, indistinctly, briefly, revelations the like of which cannot be achieved by rational thought. It is like the small mirror of legend. You look into it, but instead of yourself, you glimpse for a moment the inaccessible, a realm forever beyond your reach, and your soul begins to ache. So the, the first way that, that uh, art seeks the peace of the city is, is the oldest way. It's by nourishing worship. The second way art seeks the peace of the city is by exposing injustice in the city. The church has a prophetic function in the city, pointing out injustice. Uh, typically, the, the church fulfills that function through words, through sermons and essays and things like that. But one of the most powerful ways that the church exposes injustice is through her artists. Because uh, poems and paintings and plays and sculptures have a way of naming injustice in a city um, that words cannot do. For example, I'm going to read to you uh, some statistics from the the CARM website about homelessness, and then I want to make an illustration. There are about 1,500 homeless persons in Knoxville. That's a 50% increase over the last decade. In 1996, one-third suffered from mental illness. It's now estimated to be 50%. Currently, 75% of the homeless population is male. The number of women increases. 26% of Knoxville's homeless served in the armed forces. Reasons cited for homelessness include alcohol, drug addiction, lack of housing, and mental illness. 47% of the homeless say that they've been a victim of some form of crime, including robbery and assault. So that's one way. That's how I, using words, can talk about the injustice of homelessness. But now let's take a look at, at, at how Katie uh, tried to talk about this issue in our city on a, on a, a series of photograph, photographs that have been displayed in several different places. I think we have just a couple that are up there. Bruce, if you could go ahead and show those. Um, and as you can tell, these photographs communicate the pain, the hopelessness, and the dignity of our homeless neighbors far more effectively than statistics can. Charles Dickens used his pen to expose injustice in his city. Uh, His novel, Bleak House, takes on a number of social problems in the 19th century London where he lived. And one of the things that was going on in London at the time was people were unaware of uh, the poor in their midst, and they focused on uh, what was becoming very fashionable was supporting missions in Africa. And so they would have tea parties for Africa uh, while people starved all around them. And Dickens creates Mrs. Jellyby, uh, to illustrate this hypocrisy. And Mrs. Jellyby is, I think, my favorite Dickens character. Um, she spends all her time writing letters and raising money for the Borya Bulaga, a tribe she's never met who live on the left bank of the Niger. Meanwhile, her five children run wild and neglected around her. Now, Esther Summerson, the, the novel's narrator, visits Mrs. Jellyby and watches in horror as one of Mrs. Jellyby's children falls down the stairs while she's writing a letter 
raising funds for Africa. And here's the paragraph. As we came into Mrs. Jellyby's presence, one of the poor little children fell downstairs, down a whole flight, as it sounded to me, with a great noise. Mrs. Jellyby, whose face reflected none of the uneasiness which we could not help showing in our own faces, as the dear child's head recorded its passage with a bump on every stair, received us with perfect equanimity. She was a pretty, very diminutive, plump woman from 40 to 50, with handsome eyes, though they had a curious habit of seeming to look a long way off, as if they could see nothing nearer than Africa. (laughs) So Dickens had a way of uh, exposing a hypocrisy in his city that sermons never could. So a city's artists are like urban prophets. They critique injustice of the city. But they also can paint a picture of what a healed city might look like. They can not only expose problems, they can awaken hope. For example, artists in New York City recently noticed that many storefront properties were boarded up in the recession because small businesses couldn't rent them. And so they got together, they talked to developers, and they began putting up art galleries featuring the work of local artists in those abandoned spaces. And when Mozambique's 17-year civil war ended... Uh, Artists chopped up AK-47 rifles, pistols, and rocket-propelled grenade launchers and created a sculpture called the Tree of Life, which became a symbol of reconciliation after conflict. Alex Haley's novel, Roots, uh, told the story of American slavery in a way that no one had told it before. And uh, the author spent the last 16 years of his life in East Tennessee. And this is a 13-foot bronze statue of Alex Haley that was commissioned by the city and unveiled during Black History Month in 1998. The author is sitting by a stream with his novel in his hands, looking at the Smoky Mountains. And so the sculpture celebrates an artist from our city who was a champion of social justice and reminds us of a dark chapter of our nation's history that we shouldn't forget. So this is a second way that artists seek the peace of the city. They expose injustice in the city. Now, the third way we'll look at tonight, art creates joy in the city. And artists bless the city by simply creating joy. In Isaiah's classic vision, Isaiah chapter 65, joy is one of the characteristics of a city experiencing God's shalom. God says through the prophet, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. And so if the heavenly city is filled with joy, then that's what we want our cities to be like on earth. Celebrations and delight mark a city enjoying God's shalom. Uh, If you've ever had a chance to go to one of the Dirty Gov uh, concerts, uh, James Trimble... uh, has reflected on their ministry, and uh, he sent me an email. He said, Music brings people together and creates commonality. Attending a live concert is one of the very few opportunities in life where a person gets to step outside of his or her problems for 90 minutes and instead be overwhelmed by joy, inspiration, and hopefully truth. We hope our concerts leave people feeling joyful, and maybe we get them thinking about the purpose of their life a little bit more. We aren't trying to convert or preach to people, but we're trying to give them an excellent experience and indirectly show them a little bit of the freedom Christ offers. Now, there's a number of ways that that this can happen. Art brings people together in the city. 
last Friday night, we, we had uh, an opportunity to go to the share house over in Park Ridge at the Johnson's backyard, and people all over the neighborhood had come out to enjoy uh, Betsy Johnson's pictures and sip wine, eat cheese, and there's this wonderful kind of social magic that occurs when people come together around art. Art can create community. Art can also celebrate the city where we live. Uh, David Taylor wrote an essay explaining how the arts help us embrace our city. Uh, He said, some of us live in towns that feel strange to us. It's easy to resent God for putting us here. But artists come along and perform an invaluable service. They help us see that, in fact, God is happily at work here, quietly making grace happen in unexpected ways, gently rebuking our stubborn refusal to see that salvation and sanctification are occurring in this place, this street, this humidity, this church, this grocery store, these people. Artists offer us a great gift. Their gift is to help us to see our place of residence as lovingly as God does. Art also, at least for a moment, can help us overcome our divisions and unite around a higher experience of beauty. Uh, On Christmas 1914, German troops were shivering in the trenches a few hundred yards away from French and Scottish soldiers, and they had been slaughtering each other for months. Kaiser Wilhelm had sent thousands of Christmas trees to the front to boost the troops' morale. And uh, on Christmas Eve, when the trees were set up over the trenches, a German soldier with a lovely tenor voice began singing Silent Night. Soon the French and Scottish troops joined in, and eventually the soldiers laid down their weapons, climbed out of the trenches, and met their enemies in the middle of no man's land. They exchanged gifts and even played a game of soccer. And maybe that's what Leo Tolstoy meant when he said, art should cause violence to be set aside. When the people of a city weep together as the curtain closes on a moving play or sing an old Dylan song together on New Year's Eve, we're for at least a moment no longer Republicans and Democrats, old and young, South Knoxvillians or West Knoxvillians. We're one, and art helps make that happen. The video I want to show you now provides an illustration of how art can bring joy to the city.
that's actually an ad for a bank in Spain. Um, we have Geico. Um, well, the church ought to be a cradle of creativity, a school for artists, uh, a support network for craftsmen who can go into the square and perform like that. But we often fail to do this. Um, this failure was exposed in an article written in the student newspaper of a Christian college by a senior art student. The artist arrived at the Christian school thrilled with her calling to be an artist and engaged, eager to explore her gift. But by the end of her sophomore year, quote, she was sick of her peers' indifference to her calling. She was fed up with comments that suggested that art is a waste of time, a field for slackers and weirdos. And she wrote in her journal, I always felt I had to justify myself. That is a terrible thing. I'm a child of God. God made me someone who sees the world in a manner that's different from most perceptions. He gave me the urge to create. Tragically, her community did not affirm that gift. And if you were looking for a patron saint of an artist whose gifts were ignored or abused by the church, it would be Vincent van Gogh. Van Gogh had a conversion experience about 1875. Uh, he was working then as an art dealer in the Netherlands. And he became a missionary to coal miners. And he threw himself into the work. A generation later, families would remember what a gifted missionary he was. But the missionary agency uh, did not like the unorthodox approach he was taking and fired him. And at the same time, he had a father and an uncle who were Dutch clergy and they rejected him. And so in 1880, Van Gogh left the church to make way in the world as an artist. And his later artwork reflects his alienation as an artist. Uh, the church in Starry Night, for example, is the only building that does not reflect the brilliance of the stars above. It's completely dark. So what can we do to support uh, the Van Goghs in our midst? Well, the first step would be patronage. We can become patrons of our artists. We can attend their shows and readings. We can buy their pictures and sculptures and books. We can give them a spare room to work in. The second would be freedom. We can give our artists the freedom to create outside the traditional lines of Christian art. Uh, we didn't study art much in the seminary I went to. The one book we did read... Um, argued that Christians, quote, should produce art depicting biblical stories or subjects related to the Christian faith. When we remove Christ or Mary or other Christian themes from the picture itself, it is as if Christ himself were placed outside the world. So this art by a Dutch art historian and Christian named Rookmacher essentially says that the only kind of work that a Christian can do uh, is on biblical themes. But, but that limits the artist unnecessarily. Gregory Wolf, the editor of the arts journal Image, puts it like this. He says, Too many efforts to relate religion and the arts have stumbled because they attempt to channel the imagination into pious patterns. At the root of this failure is an underlying fear of the imagination itself. Believers who fear the imagination prefer art that does not stray too far from the church porch. But art at its highest pitch tries to tell us things we don't know or have forgotten, and that can be unsettling. 
So we need to give our artists the freedom to take their imaginations wherever the Spirit leads them. Community is also important in supporting our artists. Uh, Many artists feel that their unique way of perceiving the world inevitably places them on the margins of community. Uh, Many of them just always feel like outsiders. And so we need to go after them. We need to work hard so they don't pull away. We need to affirm their gifts and efforts and celebrate them. And we need to have an artist community as well where older artists mentor younger artists and they can support each other in their work. Lastly, I would love to see all souls become a community where artists are healed so that they can be freed up to pursue their calling. Um, Kaim Potok, in an autobiographical novel called My Name is Asher Lev, uh, depicts a wounding that I think happens for many Christians as well. Um, He talks about what it's like as a gifted artist in a faith community when the community doesn't value the gift. And and this little boy shows his genius as a young child, but his parents are members of a strict Jewish sect in New York City, and they believe that pursuing art this way is is at best a waste of time and at worst could lead him to hell. But Asher cannot stop pursuing his gift. A neighbor even tells him, go wash your hands. You're driving us all crazy with your pictures and your stubbornness. What kind of Jewish boy behaves this way to a mother and father? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Asher becomes a famous painter. His works are put on display in in a museum in Manhattan. His parents come to observe them and are so ashamed that they walk away. And Asher's rabbi tells him he's a disgrace to the community and uh, demands that he leave the city forever. And so like Van Gogh, he's exiled from a faith community that cannot nurture his gift. And the the question that that I end with is, um, are you Asher Lev? Uh, Are you a Vincent Van Gogh? Is there an artistic gift that God has given you that you've silenced because the community around you didn't know how to empower or nurture or, or care for it. Uh, I wonder how many Asher Lev's have left our churches for similar reasons. And I think what happens when a, an artist goes through something like this is that when they, if they do pursue their art, they become highly self-critical Uh, they're always in the back of their head telling themselves that what they're doing is wrong or worthless or no good. And so there's a deep wound of shame that can keep the artist from from moving forward. So I hope we become a congregation that prays for the healing of our artists so they can fully pursue their calling. And when they do that, they'll bless the city with art that nourishes worship, exposes injustice, and creates joy. Let's pray.